out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone. Meeting Gert was one of those interesting events in my life, which I love and cherish. Well, actually, I have not met him, but I love getting these messages that reads something along the line of, Hi, I am XYZ. I got your number from ABC. He or she says that they think we should talk. Then the call happens and the next thing you know, I've made a new friend and more often than not, another Meet Me in the Field episode happens. Gert and I met this way and I'm grateful for Michael, the working artist from our episode of 21 November 2019, for making this connection happen. I'm not going to say much more. I want Gert's story to do the talking. But if you want to know, learn more about Gert's sober living facility in Stellenbosch, then please go to www.albarosasoberliving.co.za or find Alba Rosa Sober Living on Facebook. This podcast is supported by The First Layer, the 12-step workbook on working through the 12 steps in any addiction in 21 sessions. There's also a 24-day step coaching and counseling program available based on The First Layer. For more information in this regard, go to www.freddy.org.za and click through from the notices at the right of the homepage. Please also look out for information on my new book, Life and Non, a 12-step guide to life for non-addicts. You can find it by following the link from the right of my homepage. It costs 300 rand without postage. Order from me in my shop at www.freddyshop.co.za. This is Gert's story. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Good morning, Gert. Hi, good morning, Freddy. How are you? I am cool. How are you doing? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Well, actually, I'm, I'm not cool. I'm, I'm freezing cold and I'm not sitting in front of the fireplace like you. So um, <laughs> I'm not that lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, it's, it's, it's peak winter and it's uh, sitting in front of the fireplace. It's uh, such a comfortable, relaxing place to be this hour. But I'm glad to be here and chatting with you. I'm very grateful for, for you taking the time to do this. So is that fireplace now at home or at work? Or are you working from home at the moment? A bit of both. Um, so I'm <laughs> at home at the moment and... Uh, I do some work from here. Yeah, I think like a lot of other people, you know, we, we make do with what uh, <laughs> with this lockdown and, and so on. Yeah. Uh, I manage a guest house, which I've been doing throughout my whole recovery journey. Um, so it's been 14 years. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, the guest house. Uh, I suppose we'll okay. get into that in a second. But I'm yeah. at home. Awesome. Cool. Listen, Gert, and you are based in Somerset West, but are you Cape Townian or are where are you from? I was born in Winthrop, actually. A Namibian boy. And um, grew up with thoroughbred racehorses. Wow. Um, and when I was 16, we moved down to Cape Town. Okay. And that move to Cape Town, was that to, to, to Cape Town City? To Cape Town, to, to, to this area? I, let me rephrase that. Yeah, down to the Cape. Um, 
So this was in 1982. We, as I said, we stayed on a farm and uh, we were kind of forced to come down here. Uh, my father lost money and um, I'm the youngest of four children. So I'm the Lord Lamiki. Not ah. sure if there's an English expression for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not sure. We'll, uh, we'll we find one. <laughs> so we came down in 1982 to the Helderberg Basin, where I'm still okay. at. So I love this area. I love the mountains. I love the ocean. I've been here, like I said, since 1982. It's been a long yeah. time. Okay. If I remember correctly, you mentioned last time we spoke that you do do you do triathlons? No, I do trail running. I oh, trail running, that's, that's what you said. Okay. And I do some mountain biking. So the combination of the two, I find quite a spiritual connection to be out in the mountains on my own, getting into a rhythm. And, um, you know, for somebody that needs my dopamine now and then, that's the perfect fix for yeah. me. Even when I was using, um, back in the days when I was there, there would be times where with willpower, which I've now learned becomes quite non-existent for the addict and alcoholic, it's only tool I had was willpower back then because I was, I, I was disconnected from, from God. So my willpower was my God, I suppose. And back then I would go out into the mountains and say, look, I can't carry on like this. My life, I, I, this is not working. And, and I would run. Uh, for two, three weeks, I would exercise a bit, cycle a bit, and feel better. And then that uh, obsessive mind and the the, mm. the the craving would kick back in. Yeah. And, you know, you'd be back in the monkey cage. Yeah. So in that period that you were exercising, you would not be using? No, I wouldn't. Okay. I would, uh, but sometimes that would not even... Even last three weeks, uh, sometimes it's just wishful thinking. It would last three days or so. Yeah. Okay. The reason I bring it up is that it's there's always been something out there in nature for me. There's always okay. been God, God is present for me in nature. I, I heard an old expression somewhere about angels whisper to a man who walks alone in the forest. And, nice. Um, there's some, something about that, just yeah. to be alone. To stand in a pine forest, dead quiet, and there's not a breeze. You hear the wind before you feel it. That's, mm. There's something about that. There's yeah. a movement, and you close your eyes, and there's a certain kind of meditation to that you really feel part of everything. Yeah. Well, the sound of the wind was what, what, what helped me to find my higher powers. So I, I get that sound of the wind completely. Really? Yeah. Let me just quickly ask you, um, it tickles my interest. What do you mean, the, the sound of the wind connected I was, with your higher power? Was, was that an incident? Yeah, I was standing outside in the rehab that I was underneath a weeping willow, smoking, and it was early December, mm -hmm. and the wind was blowing through the leaves. And it's that sound that made me realize, okay, so there's energy in the wind, and I can tap into that energy, and that will be my step two, my power greater than myself. And from there, you developed into nature, becoming a higher power. So growing up on a farm yeah. in Namibia and then moving, wait, let, let, let's stick to the farm in Namibia. Um, did you grow up with, with religion? So I grew up not really in Namibia. I was very young when we moved. I was, I think, three years old when we moved to what they used to call back then the Republic. <laughs> 
And <laughs> yes, I grew up in the typical uh, Afrikaans, NG, Nederduits gereformeerde environment. I know um, that environment. Since an early age. My parents were not staunchly religious, although they went to church when they could. Okay. And did religion resonate with you? Not from the beginning. Um, there was something about it, I suppose, the ritual, the tradition, but I became quite, I think, not resistant. I get the weerstand Yeah. I suppose, towards it, because I, we, in Kimberley, I was in a hostel, and we would be forced to go to church twice a day, uh, suit and tie, you have to walk kilometers in the heat to get there. And it was not a pleasant experience. As, yeah. I suppose it was this Old Testament fire and brimstone God that was portrayed to me. And the, the Dwemini always seemed angry. He yeah. seemed angry at me. <laughs> That's very true. While I'm in church, <laughs> I was sitting in church and he was angry at me. And I thought, how angry must he be if I'm not here? Yeah. Because he wants me here to shout at me, to shout at me. And... Uh, so no, I did not have a very uh, positive relationship with Godstins, with religion okay. back then. Yeah, it's you've raised something interesting, which I've it's never strange. actually thought about: is is that concept <laughs> of of anger? <laughs> that that you're right. The doom always did yeah. sound angry. <laughs> awesome. I would leave feeling guilty. I yeah. would go to church feeling okay, semi okay, okay. And then leave feeling guilty, yeah. and then try, and then when I'm outside, trying to do things to lessen the guilt, so that when I go next time, it w I won't have, <laughs> I won't feel so down when I walk out of the yeah. place. And uh, it didn't it didn't work because that I was trying to do things out of my own, uh, acts out of my own to try and uh, get closer to this God that He's talking about, this angry God. Yeah. So for me, that's the picture. Oh, yes, I also understand that I was young and, and my spiritual maturity, uh, there was a big lack of spiritual maturity and understanding as to um, where I now understand God as an all-loving, all-forgiving, powerful God. Um, but that was a gradual transition that went from religion through some new age beliefs, crystal healing and body alignment and Reiki. And I went through many experiments, religious experiments and, and experiences. They were all uh, powerful spiritual experiences. They were, what I've learned is that there were power, there's power in, in almost everything you believe in. If you yeah. set your heart to something. Yeah. Like look look at yourself, what happened when you're standing under the willow tree? It kick-started something, it drew you into something way, way bigger. And for me, the, one of the biggest lessons I've learned in, in recovery and in my spiritual journey is not to get to a point where I say, okay, I know who God is. I understand exactly who it is that I worship. If I box God in like that, then I worship a very small God, and I sometimes have very big problems. So I don't, I, I don't need a small God. I, yeah. I can't uh, worship the intellect or worship the God of understanding, because that's quite often the trap that I could find myself falling into. That I say stuff like, 
well, if I could just figure it out, then I'll believe. Or if I can see how he could do this, then I'll follow him. But that's not him. That's me trying to step into the way. I hear you. I hear you. So, Kurt, when, when and how does a boy from Namibia growing up in Kimberley fall into addiction? Yeah, that's uh, the day <laughs> that we actually moved from the Northern Cape. Coming down to uh, the Helderberg Basin, a whole new world unfolded. As I said, I was the youngest. I was then almost like the only child because the other three already left the house. I stepped into a world where the, the rules were very much, um, it was not that strict down here. There's a lot of gray area and a lot of playing field. And I was a curious teenager. I, I was 16 years old when I arrived here. It felt like I was on holiday all the time. I could get on my bicycle and ride down to the beach and sit there until late hours. And um, there's just this feeling of freedom all of a sudden. And um, I had always, let, let me go back to your question, Freddie. When I was about six years old, I checked this uh, incident with all the siblings, whether this really happened or it's just a trick my mind played yeah. on you. I asked him two questions. Did this really happen? Number one, they all said yes. And I said, what did it do to you when it happened? And they described something. So what happened was, picture this. Every July holiday, the, the, the family, uh, our whole family would go to Durban, the June, July holiday. So I grew up in a, in a privileged environment where we went on holidays and, and a loving environment, loving family. And that was, that was a non-negotiable annual holiday. We yeah. went and we all loved it and enjoyed being in Durban. So picture that day one, uh, little cat standing there with his beach towel around his neck and a beach ball on the side and uh, uh, under the arm. And we, now we're going. This is like, uh, this is the, the beginning of the adventure. And my dad was kind of a larger than life figure. He would, he could really, draw us into an experience because two months before the holiday starts he's starting to talk about it and romanticize it and put images in your head about how amazing it's going to be and yeah. so it, it, the journey has always been part of the the whole experience for us okay and we're standing there right on the first day on the the ninth story of a hotel that we stayed in and the next moment there's a sound of breaking glass outside on the ground floor, and instantly, as a six-year-old child, I knew that there's a shift of energy, and my father calls everybody, and what I realize now is that it, it was kind of a pinnacle moment in my life that, so what happened was on the ground floor, there was a bottling plant, either SAP or Coca-Cola or whatever, and there were four, let's call them uh, hippies, if that word still applies. <laughs> And uh, some alternative thinkers, <laughs> white alternative thinkers, uh, free thinkers and so on. So they were down there, what South Africans will understand if I say they were smoking a bottleneck, a marijuana yeah. pipe. They, they broke a bottle and they were busy preparing it. And my father obviously figured out what was going on down there. And they thought this was a, the right moment to speak to his children about the dangers of drugs and uh, the life the dangers of such a life. Okay. He called us together and he said, I don't remember his exact words, but it was something to the effect of, look down there and you see what's going on there. If you ever get into a life of drugs, that's where you'll end up. 
And all, all three of the siblings said to me that they remember it, and to them it was kind of an, a revolting, uh, off-putting idea. They looked at it and they thought, oh, that I really don't want to ever get involved in anything like that. I was six years old, and I was like, I'm going to try that. <laughs> so, I don't know. There was something different, and I was yeah. like, <laughs> I've heard this in many, many AA and NA rooms. I've, I've often heard people say, I've always felt different. The yeah. addicts in recovery, alcoholics in recovery, I often hear them say that. In the beginning, I misunderstood that. I thought that was kind of an ego statement. I'm different. I'm better. It's not yeah. what I mean. How does a six-year-old child decide that the first time I ever see, smell, drugs, marijuana, or something that alters with the way I feel now, I'm going to try it. Yeah. So that happens in the period that you just referred to. Just before we come down here, we come to visit my sister in Stellenbosch. I walk at the, the Stellenbosch campus. I'm 15 years old, and I smell something. And the moment I smell it, I know it's not cigarettes. And I know it's marijuana. Yeah. I, I walk straight up to this African guy. He's sitting there with a long soul. And this <laughs> was old South Africa. This was old, old South Africa. And I'm from a farm, so I'm used to the fact that, that you know, the old, old regime yeah. plays off. And I speak to him. He's an older gentleman. I'm supposed to respect him. And I just walked up to him and I said to him, is that Dachadai? You know, in English, yeah. is that marijuana? And he goes, yes, boss. And I said, give me some. And immediately, that was just a no-brainer. I immediately smoked. Nothing happened. Like, yeah. I've spoken to many other people that said the first time they smoked, nothing happened. But I was always going to go that way. I'm not sure why. Yeah. But now, looking back, I'm really thankful for the road that I've, the, the, you know, I've heard somebody once said that we need more spiritual leaders that walk with a limp. We that some of the best spiritual teachers that I come across are people that you can see the scars of life yeah. over them, written, written over them. The story is written in the moment they open their mouths, but also physically you can sometimes see. Yeah, so I suppose that kicked it off from there on coming to Cape Town, or I keep on saying Cape Town, to the Helderberg area. My first, there's a couple of firsts. So the first time I tasted alcohol, I was not much older than the incident in Durban. I think I was about eight or nine. My parents left the house one evening and left me with my siblings, and there was some champagne standing around. I thought it would be a great idea to feed their little brother some alcohol, which I really enjoyed. It was like a whole new world. Like, wow, what is this? I was jumping off the furniture and swinging around, and I became to them, incredibly entertaining. They loved, it felt to me like I was the center of the universe. And yeah. they, I was just wondering when the next time was going to be, which was years afterwards. Yeah. But I did things like steal a bottle of wine out of my father's study in Kimberley when I was about 14. Uh, a guy that stayed across the road that was older than me said, why don't you go? I'm sure your dad's got some alcohol in his face. And I think he had one sip. I just... Drank until I fell over. So yeah, I wasn't that kind of alcoholic in later years. I was a functioning. I I managed businesses. I wasn't the guy that slept with a bottle of vodka under the bed. Um, not that that's the worst kind of alcoholic. It's just alcoholism. It's just yeah. the mental obsession and the phenomenon of craving. 
whether you're out on the street or you're a high-functioning professional individual, makes no difference. It's, Absolutely. It's addiction. Very, so very true. Your, a long-winded answer. But yeah. coming no, down that, to that, that's the perfect, perfect response. And was marijuana what they call the gateway drug for you? Did it lead not just to the fridge, but to other drugs as well? <laughs> yeah, you see that. It's always been an interesting question to me because, you know, you sometimes hear people say things because they hear it said by other people and it's assumed, yes, that must be true. Yeah. I, I don't speak for other people, but what, what, yeah, what marijuana did, I, I drank before I, before I smoked weed. Okay, so alcohol, if you want to call anything a gateway, for me it was alcohol, okay. if you talk about a gateway. What marijuana did is it put me in the company of people that opened other doors. So a gateway in that sense, yeah. in the sense that, wow, this, this is good weed. What else do you have? Yes, that's a gateway. Okay. It got me into a crowd, a different crowd. Yeah. I don't think everybody that smokes weed gets triggered to use heavier drugs. Yeah, absolutely. Because that, I think, is what the gateway drug means to, yeah. to me. I don't think it necessarily, you smoke a joint, now you have to have heroin. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it's that kind <laughs> exactly, of yeah. connection. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's more the, the crowd that it exposes you to. Yeah. I find it very interesting in the work I do and we do is when you get this call from from this hysterical mother is I just caught my teenage boy smoking a joint. He needs to go to rehab. <laughs> no, I don't think he needs to go to rehab because you caught him smoking a joint. Let's wait for a pattern to develop and, and, and let's talk to him about what's really going on. The addiction picture is far bigger than, than just somebody smoking a joint or somebody having a drink or, or getting drunk. Said so you matriculated in the Helderberg, and you you and I are about the same age. So you did you do military service? Oh yes. So, ah. so I matriculated in the Strand in 1985. So uh, you know what was going on in the country back, Absolutely. back then. So to set the stage, in 1984, I met the girl of my dreams. The, like Rod Stewart says, the first cut is the deepest. That uh -huh. was that one. And uh, I was just completely head over heels and completely lost myself in, in this goal and um, literally thought, this is it. Um, nothing else matters. I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this woman. Went to uh, Heidelberg. Uh, I still say Transvaal. Heidelberg, Hateng, up there in close to Nigel and those places. Yeah. Two years, military service. As they say, the best time of your life that you never want over again. <laughs> um, and while I was there, I suppose I also saw some leadership skills of mine then starting to surface because I immediately went to, uh, I thought, look, you stuck for two years, you might as well make the best of it. Became an instructor. and um, But then alcohol was... That's when you have a little bit of cash. I was paid 174 rand per month. Yeah. That was enough to do my laundry, uh, weekend now and then to pay for uh, a bit of extra social activities, which mostly involved alcohol. Then I realized everybody drinks for the effect of it, like it says in the AA Big Book. So I thought everybody drank the way I drank. What I did realize is that I used to always have a beer in each hand, just in case. <laughs> that I can't get to back to the bar in time or something. 
I drank different. I drank different. Yeah. If you wanted to greet me behind, I had to put a beer down. Uh, yeah. And that's debatable if I was going to do that. So, yes, I did military service. This girl left me about a month just before the end of the second year. Everybody oh, got no. their eardrums in the first month. Yeah. I got cut very deep and it took me... I realized in hindsight that for somebody that gets really involved in a relationship, uh, I mean romantically, and it completely identifies with the relationship to the point where nothing else matters, two things. One was I couldn't get connected to God that way. Okay. I can't because she's too important. She's too important for me. Number two was her leaving was trauma at the level of somebody losing a family member or a loved one. Yeah. The impact it had on me, the impact it had on me lasted something between six and eight years on an emotional level, which um, there's, there, I don't know if it awoken abandon, abandonment issues or if it just started it. Yeah. But after that, there was quite a level of insecurity and me comparing anybody else I meet with her and they couldn't live up, of course. They didn't know they were competing with somebody from my past at all. Yeah. So, and I can easily say, yes, the drinking escalated because of that. Um, I suppose you could say a little bit of that is true, but the drinking yeah. escalated because I was an alcoholic to start off with. Yeah. I was, it was going to escalate anyway. I would but drink I, if the team was winning. I would drink if the team loses. I drink. You know? I, I, there used to be a girl in the NA rooms in Cape Town when I was still living in Cape Town. I said, as addicts, we can celebrate, but um, we celebrate the grand opening of a packet of cigarettes by using. <laughs> Here we go. Yes. <laughs> exactly. We, we, we opening. Yeah. <laughs> oh, opening a packet of cigarettes. Let's like do a line. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? You know what? Only an addict would say something like that because we add a lot of value to a ritual. This could take you 15 minutes to open that packet. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Oh, one thing I, I, I'll never, ever forget in my life was the frustration of smoking dope with friends. Because one person would always hog the fucking joint. And I would say they kind of, oh, puff, pause, pause, pause the joint, pause the and joint. You know what, and you <laughs> take the puff, take the puff. <laughs> and that's the guy that gets involved into a conversation with the joint in his hand. Oh. Okay, so there's, five, there's three or five people <laughs> in the circle. We all take two or three hits. We pass it on. It gets to him. He starts telling a story. <laughs> he takes two or three hits. Now he's telling the story and we're all going, oh, we're trying to look interested, but everybody's <laughs> thinking the same thing. It's past the fucking time. Well, that's, what you, that's what you think. Maybe we were the only ones who kind of got past it. I, 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 I will maybe. never forget how obsessed yeah. I became. We're going to pass the fuck. And I'm too embarrassed to say I'm going to pass the joints. I just said they're getting angry and angry and waiting in anticipation. You know trying to reach me. Reminds me of. <laughs> We are not. We are not only selfish. We are only incredible. We are also incredibly insecure. So you know, we want it, but we don't have this self-confidence. Exactly. To stand up and say something. I mean, the AA big book says self selfishness and self-centeredness. That's yeah. the core of our problem. That's the root of our problem. Absolutely. It's also driven by a hundred forms of fear. 
Ja, self-centered fear. Ja. I can't remember. I can't. I can't believe you triggered that memory for me. I haven't thought about that for many, many years. <laughs> so, and after the army, what happened for you? So, at towards the end of army, we went to write some aptitude tests because I never really knew what I wanted to become. I've, I've until very recently, I didn't have goals and dreams. I'd always envy people that that would say stuff like. You know, five years from now, I'm, I'm yeah. going to be married, I'm going to have a car, or at least wish for something, at least yeah. have something out there. You know, you, you can dribble the ball, but if there's not a goalpost, it's just you playing around like blindly on the field with nobody exactly. else. So I then went, I, I wrote the test and they said, I think as a cop, <laughs> they said, you, you must go into sales. You, you, you'll be good with people. Turns out all addicts are good with people when it suits them. Um, I was a great salesman. I could spin the story whichever way. Like we, a lot of us have the gift of the gap back then. You can, you can sell ice to the Eskimos. And um, it also leans itself, the sales environment also leans itself to freedom. And, and mm. uh, you're not tied down to hours. Uh, you yeah. in the way your own boss as long as there's uh, as long as the, the, the targets get met. So I went to study at the Cape Technicon. Okay. And this is remember, this is right after this uh, romantic crash. And um, I then met somebody that everybody says, hold on, this is the woman you should get married to. And I will never forget one day she looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said to me, Alcohol is more important to you than it is to than than, you, than I am to you. Wow! And the words that came out of my mouth and the thought that went through my head was in contradiction with each other, in exact opposing diameters. To put it that way, I said, "No, it's not true. I love you so much." And the thought that went through my head was, "Of course, of course, alcohol yeah. is more important than you are." I didn't hmm. want to think that. Yeah. But alcohol never let me down, and um, it's unfair, you know, to get into relationships when you. Think like that when you yeah. in that when you stay. But coming back to what I said to you earlier, I'm really grateful for, and it sounds, and I think only addicts and alcoholics understand this statement. I'm grateful to be a recovering alcoholic. Absolutely. I'm grateful that I went through that part of my life to to now be part of other people's life. My biggest kick in life now is to be part of other people's recovery. Yeah. It's the one thing that enlarges my spiritual life to no other measure. No, nothing else come close, comes yeah. close to being of service to other people in, in a very humble way. I mean, the, the, the quickest way I could screw, screw up my recovery or my spiritual growth is to turn a miracle into a compliment. If somebody comes <laughs> up to me and says, wow, Chad, you look great, you... And I go, oh, thank you. <laughs> it's not me. I, it's not, you know, I, don't I love that. Too. I've never heard that one. <laughs> Turn a miracle into a compliment. It. Yeah, to not recognize the miracle of yeah. it. And look humble and thank people. Yeah. But did you forget that for 20 years you couldn't figure this out yourself until you came exactly. into a program? And yeah. admitted defeat, and within three months you had a life back that you could have never imagined. Don't Did we so. forget that? 
Uh, I had a friend in early recovery that he saw me going through the motions of, of addiction way back then. And then on the, um, let's just add this quickly, on the 9th of August, 2006, I also stood under a tree and I did a prayer. It was a, it was a little pine forest area that I lifted up. I lived up here in Hillcrest in Somerset West. And I was broken, Freddie. I was just completely, I was done. I was beaten down to a pulp. And uh, uh, people started leaving me, girlfriends. Um, you know, people talk about a rock bottom. And my rock bottom was simply when one day I prayed and I said, God, please show me that I'm an addict. Please show me that I'm an alcoholic. Then I'll do the work. I don't want to go through all this and three months later figure out, oh, it turns out all of this wasn't necessary because I'm yeah. healthy. <laughs> I, do, I, I do that prayer. The next day, I go to my sister. We had a bride, and I'm doing the typical thing. I go around the corner and go see what wine she has at the back, just open the bottle and drink and stuff like that. She walks up to me, and she says to me, I'm deleting your, your name from my phone, and you're not welcome in my house anymore until you sort your shirt out. I turn around, I walk away from her, and I've got this smile on my face because now I've got confirmation, and now I can, yeah. I can start with the work. <laughs> Freaky. So... I literally pray to God to show me what do I do next. Yeah. This is in the period where I end up probably a week or two before that I'm standing under that tree and um, I pray and I say something like, please help me. I can't do this. I'll mm. do anything. It's a simple prayer. We've all said it. Yeah. And um, or a lot of us have said it. Um, the other prayer I used to pray a lot was saying to God stuff like, God, what's wrong with me? Oh, What's absolutely. wrong with me? Why am I doing this again and again? Yeah. What I've learned subsequently is, is that a lot of people say, yeah, but I've prayed that a lot. I've been on my knees with a cross in my hand and I've begged God and nothing happened. Nothing happens because you're keeping something behind your back. One little thing, your want for money or power or recognition or lust or whatever it is, that one little thing you keep behind your back. Is your new God, and it's the one thing that blocks the power of God to flow into your life. Yeah. So what the difference was that day is I helped. I was thank God I was desperate enough to not hold anything back. Yeah. And only people that has had the profound, vital spiritual experience understand what I'm going to say now. The moment you admit complete defeat, full power flows into you. Either gradually, in my case, immediately. There was immediate yeah. freedom. There was a. Um, not an audio voice, but there was three words. In Afrikaans, a technical word, that there's no debate. I knew, <laughs> I knew I'm going to be able yeah. to get through my crystal meth withdrawal, marijuana, alcohol. A year, I was a year clean and I, I stopped smoking cigarettes. And, um, but I went way back now to answer something else. I'm sure you're asking something else now. And I, I typically do this with my old addict mind. It still runs into and, 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 and right now, I can't even remember what the question was, but I, I found the story fascinating. So anyway, so do I hear you correctly that... Oh, okay, yes. okay, I got it. Sorry. Addicts listening will excuse us. Okay, we're back. So I had this friend. Uh, we were talking about miracles and compliments. Oh, yes. And I had this friend in early recovery that when he came into early recovery, I mean, he was part of my life from using days. Mm. And then when I came into recovery... This transition happened, this transformation. After I did that prayer, I just couldn't wipe the grin off my face because you know what it feels like to get into the ring, excuse the crude example, but using for me was like getting into the ring with Mike Tyson 
every morning and getting yeah. knocked out every day and getting back into the ring every day. But after that prayer, I knew I was going to win the fight. I yeah. knew because something in my core shifted and there was a knowledge inside me that I was going to be able to now overcome something. The big book says God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Yeah. And because I put everything on the table, there was a knowledge inside of me that I just knew I was going to be able yeah. to do this with the help of God. That's what now say, we yeah. come to the fact that this friend said to me, Craig, you look great. You look so well. Well done. Well done. Tap me on the shoulder. Tap me on the shoulder. And I thanked him, but I couldn't understand why I felt so uncomfortable with him complimenting me yeah. until I recognized that this is not me. This is a miracle. This is something that I've tried to do for between 20 and 25 years, and I couldn't do it with my own willpower until yeah. the 9th of August 2006 when I was broken enough to put everything on the table and boom, and there was a miracle. Yeah. And thank goodness I could recognize the miracle for what it was so that I can turn to the friend with the next time tapping me on the shoulder saying, you know what, Andy, thank you, but it's not me. This is God. Yeah. This is clearly not me. You know me. And <laughs> God is doing for me what I can't do for myself. I love that saying. Listen, Gert, so the God that you prayed to on that day, was that the God of your childhood or was that a, 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 a different understanding? What, what were you praying to? Because what, what I'm trying to get to is, did you through your using kind of have a connection with your religious God that you grew up with? What are we talking about here? Okay. So, yes, it is the God that I was introduced to or my concept of that. When I was using, there was not a connection. There was effort. There was ongoing effort fueled by shame, fueled by guilt that I would uh, pray, God, please help me with this. I, yeah. was, I was one of the kind of addicts, alcoholics, that towards the end of my using would talk to people and say to them things like, I can't stop. I would contact people with, which I thought would be the big, the alcoholics and other people says we reach a point where we are beyond human aid. What's human aid? For in my case, human aid is my girlfriend, my mother, my doctor, my psychologist, my duomany. The human, I was beyond whatever they said. It was irrelevant because I was an addict. So I got to the point where uh, during using, I would still try and reach out because I knew there was power. There was there were certain incidences in my childhood that I could hold on to. Certain periods of calmness because I prayed, there was peace, and I would remember that. And I, I always suggest to people to write down, number one, a gratuity list, things that we are, can write yeah. down and be grateful for, like, like breathing, like having hot water when you wake up to shower with, like having shoes, like basic stuff. Yeah. You know, you go, ah, oh, really, but <laughs> there's millions of people that don't have this and running fresh water mm -hmm. and so forth. And, um, and also pinnacle spiritual moments. If you have anything to refer back to, even if it's one or two things, the yeah. day your mother died, maybe something happened. You said a prayer and there's something came and you calmed down. Or you just met somebody. Somebody else came into your life that then became a pillar that you could, a, a supporting a spiritual figure or so forth. It's the same, same kind of concept, but just effort, effort. So I would pray out of guilt, out of shame. And it was literally like a ceiling above me, like yeah. talking to the ceiling, talking to the walls. 
And that would make it worse because then all this doubt and ambivalence, like what God, what there's yeah. no God, there's, can you see there's no God? And then I'd self-medicate. Then I would, I would use, I would drink. Um, that would, and it, it would just add to the whole confusion and fear. Mm. Pray harder, pray harder. Go run in the mountain for longer. Uh, Join a gym. Um, uh, get another girlfriend. Don't drink on Wednesdays. Go. Don't drink at that bar. All yeah. these things that I try to do, and I am still praying to the same God. The change that's happened is because of the twelve-step program. My character defects, my fear, my resentment, um, my selfishness, my dishonesty. Most of those things I've become aware of, and I've asked God to remove them. Every little character defect that gets removed, there's more. It's like a pipe that is now less constructed or obstructed. There's yeah. lot. There's more. We're just a conduit. Yeah, and the, the more you work at these character defects, there's more free flow. The power yeah. just flows in. The power just flows in. So it's the same God for awesome. me. When I say the same God, I remember saying to you earlier that we shouldn't try and understand a box God yeah. in. And saying, "Oh, yeah, the one when I was six years old, that one." Yeah, it's an ever-evolving process. The, the as more the more I mature spiritually, what I mean by that is uh, that for me, the twelve-step program and my spiritual beliefs go hand in hand. The twelve-step program is a spiritual program of action, and I can't put more emphasis on the word action. Yeah. It's not a spiritual program of debate. Uh, osmosis talk, or osmosis even so it's definitely a spiritual program of action and the more action I take meaning get up in the morning early and spend time with God I heard somebody talk about the three D's the first D is a decision you make a decision or you don't it took me 25 years to make a decision to take step one and admit that I'm powerless of alcohol and that my life has come and yeah. become unmanageable but the moment you make a decision you then do something else, and that is discipline, the second D. And when I applied the discipline long enough, discipline is not enjoyable. It's not dependent on my mood, my feelings, because I've already made a decision. If my decision was to gym four times a week, it wasn't based on whether it's raining or not, or whether I'm in the mood for it or not. It's a decision to gym four times a week. Yeah. And if I do that long enough, the discipline that's not enjoyable, will turn into delight. And now my spiritual program of action is that I do get up every morning and I want to have that hour with God because it's a, it's a delightful space to, to yeah. be in. And the evenings and during the day. So my concept of God is ever growing and evolving. There's more power flowing in all the time. The spirit is absolutely light. It's yeah. a lightness. You you. You sometimes have this feeling that life is, somebody said, life is like a loose garment. And that's a wonderful space to move in, is not to have to try and explain yourself to anybody to be comfortable in your skin. And your only mission is to be of benefit to other people, is yeah. to be of use to other people. I'm not going to places anymore thinking, who's going to be there? What am I getting? God has turned me into somebody that the moment we're going somewhere, I'm wondering, I, I hope I'm going to be of service. I hope I can be of help to somebody. And mm. I pray for that. There's a, ah. there's a prayer in recovery called the set-aside prayer. You've heard it? Set-aside anything I think I know about myself, my fellows, the program, recovery, so that I can have an open mind, number one, and a new experience. 
Because there okay. are two things. Please help me to see the truth. Okay. Awesome. We need to wrap it up, but let's wrap it up by you telling us a little bit what happened for you in recovery. What happened in recovery? You, you want to wrap it up? Uh, that will take longer. <laughs> I give you uh, five minutes. Make use of it or let it go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or forever hold your peace. Exactly, yeah. forever keep, yeah. <laughs> recovery was, has been amazing as long as I take the action, as long as I follow, as long as I share my experience, strength, and hope. Yeah. I did come into a place of uh, uh, area of complacency. Um, I went to study counseling. I became a, uh, an addictions counselor. God kept my wife aside. I'm now married. He kept, when I say that, I used to drink with her brothers. I never knew they had a sister. I only oh met God. her when I, when I <laughs> became, became more of a whole human being that didn't look for other people to make me happy. I was content when I met yeah. her, and, and she was there for the first time in her life too. So here's two individuals that meet each other that's not sucking joy from each other. We're contributing. Yes, we also went through difficult times. Our daughter is now eight years old. My wife went through um, postnatal depression, and we didn't know that in the beginning. Mm. So then, you know, me being an addict, I take everything personal, and I need her to, to make me feel good in a way. That's a bit yeah. of a... I say we, we are self-made units, but at the same time, when a man and a woman are together, we, we need, I needed that affirmation to hear, I love you, darling, yeah. you're my hero, and so on. Um, now we work together, and recovery uh, has been incredible as long as I maintain a fit spiritual condition by applying the rules. Yeah. Um, I did go into a period of complacency, especially when I became a qualified addictions counselor. I started doing less meetings and I thought, no, but I work at rehabs and I help people. That's recovery. Mm. And thank goodness I had people in my life that I gave permission to speak into my life. Yeah. And the one day this one guy said, yeah, yeah, it's great that you're doing so well spiritually, but you're not doing meetings anymore. And I had an option there to either be offended um, like they say, you can't give offense. You can only, only take it. Yeah. And uh, I didn't take <laughs> offense then. I said, you know what, you're right. And this was on about eight years of sobriety. And I just started doing meetings again. And um, my recovery is now better than it was the first five or seven years. Yeah. Um, I'm coming up on 14 years from the end of August. And the reason it is, it's because I've, stayed, I've become humble and teachable. For me, humbleness is to remain teachable. And my recovery now consists of working the steps, having a sponsor, doing service at meetings, helping other people, and feeling part of something again and being connected to God on the yeah. daily, with every breath we take. Awesome. So it's an amazing journey. It's yeah. a world that I never thought I would be part of, to be part of <laughs> something. Because I always felt separate, you know. You'd be in a crowd and feel alone. Yeah, that's then, wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Gert, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your participating in my hobby, which is Meet Me in the Field, to take a message of spirituality out in, into the world. And for that, I want to, um, what I normally do when, I, when, when times were different and we saw people face to face, I used to give people a bracelet to thank them for their contribution, but I can't. So what I would like to do is I'd like to send you a PDF copy of my book. 
And you have a choice whether you want the, wow. the, one, the, you. The, the book that I've written for addicts, which is a 12-step guide, or the one that I've written for non-addicts. So pick your, pick your choice, and I'll send that book to you in PDA format. Thank awesome. you. It's been a pleasure to sit down and talk with you. Uh, discussions on spirituality is for me a, a part of my life, part of breathing, and I Fantastic. can talk about that all the time. So thank you for, <laughs> for inviting me. For giving you a stage. You're most welcome. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, Thanks Gert. Okay. Bye. Gert and I really connected well when we chatted the first time and I'm very grateful that he agreed so willingly to openly talk to us about his spiritual journey. At one point during our chat I indicated that I would get back to something and I completely forgot. What I was going to say is that I'm also terribly grateful for my addiction and how I clearly see the path I had to walk to get to the awesome life I have today and that is also the message I get from Gert. Not only is my general life infinitely better than what it was, but spiritually, I would, just for today, not give up what I have in favour for any drink or drug. If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website, which is www.freddy.org.za, or find me on Facebook at either Meet Me in the Field, or Freddy Counselor, or on Twitter at at Freddy, or Instagram at Freddy Counselor. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an I-E at the end. Thank you for listening. Be safe. Bye.